The following program contains mature subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Turn us on and the satisfaction's guaranteed. Frank discussion with passion on CJD 800. Coming up after 10.15, our LGBTQ panel will be in studio. We're going to talk about conversion therapy, new law in place uh, that we will discuss. But first... Calling's not the only way to connect. The inbox is easy and always open at 514-800. Remember, you can always send me an email to laurie at drlaurie.com or feel free to text me right here, right now at 514-800 with your sex or relationship question. What is the average recovery time between ejaculating and being able to have sex again? So that's a very interesting question because the answer is it depends. It depends how old you are, actually. We call this the refractory period, the time between ejaculations. When you're a teenager, your refractory period is seconds. In other words, you can have one ejaculation, you can have another erection, another ejaculation, and you can probably have 10 ejaculations in a day when you're a teenager. But as you get older, the refractory period gets longer and longer. It's not the same across the board for every guy, I just want to say. Uh, it's just this is a general, like, how it usually works. So by the time you're 50 or 60 or 70, again, it's different for, for different men, that refractory period extends to all the way up to maybe 24 hours. You need a 24-hour recovery before you can ejaculate again because you're not produce as you get older, you're not producing as much uh, sperm and there's also much less need to to ejaculate. So that's the, the thing you have to remember is depending on uh, your age. Uh, do oysters really increase one's libido and how long must one wait before intercourse after eating <laughs> eating some? Uh, I've not seen any research that shows that have an oyster, have better sex right after. It's all about what oysters provide, which is zinc, uh, which is apparently good for general health and good for blood flow and such. But it's not like take an oyster instead of taking a Viagra, for example. It doesn't work like that. It's about having zinc in your diet. So... That's why they say oysters are an aphrodisiac. But I have to say, the research is really questionable on any of these things that are uh, usually what's an aphrodisiac is something that either looks sexy or like a strawberry and chocolate or or looks genital <laughs> looks like genitals. Um which could be arousing, et cetera. So that's what it's about. But with oysters, I know it has something to do with the zinc. So, and, and a lot of it goes on in your own head, by the way. If you think there is, uh, there, if you, if you think something is an aphrodisiac, well, it, it might work that way. We call that the placebo effect. 
Texture writes in, I'm a 60-year-old male. Sometimes as short as 15 minutes, sometimes longer. Depends who you are with. Okay, well, f- uh, in terms of the refractory period. So, again, it is very different for uh, for different guys. It really is. It's, uh, it's just the aging process happens differently for all of us. Some of us may experience aging earlier, um, especially men. Like women, by the time they hit 55 or so, so uh, they've most of most of us have gone through menopause. Certainly before sixty, everybody has gone through menopause, which is they've stopped getting their periods and and the stop producing um, normal levels of estrogen. But for men, what's so interesting about men is that it is they don't have like a a, a point in time that we can say, okay, now all men have aged this way, right? Uh, It really is different for different guys. Lucky guys, what can I say? uh, But but it's unpredictable. And so sometimes men freak out a little bit because they don't expect the changes. They may suddenly see, I don't understand. My erections aren't firm anymore like they used to be. What's going on? They, They panic. They don't. It's like they don't recognize or realize that there's an aging process involved with all of this. I've been married 26 years. We have uh, three uh, children. Sexual frequency decreased from marriage onwards. And after the children were born, dropped to pretty well zero. I've always wanted to have sex with my wife, but she was not interested. And whenever I asked her why, she hasn't been able to give me an answer. When we go away on vacation, we do have some sex. I'm so frustrated, I can't live on sex three times a year. I would like to see a therapist, but she said that we don't have a sexual problem. Well, I do. You know, when one person in the couple is frustrated, then the couple has a sexual issue, no question about it. And you both will need help to figure out how are we going to move forward. I think it's fair after 25 years of, of, of rarely having sex that you're able to tell your wife, look, sex is an important component for me of a relationship. And I don't want to give that all up. I am too young. I want to continue to have a, a, a vibrant uh, sex life. It doesn't necessarily have to be, um, five times a week, but, but it has to be something far more than three times a year. I say, uh, you know, try to go get to the once a week one. And I say once a week because research has shown in terms of marital happiness, that once a week seems to be the sweet spot. Like couples who had sex less than once a week were, were less uh, satisfied and couples who had more than sex than once a week were no more satisfied than those that had sex once a week. So this, that, that sweet spot is that, is that once a week. So we try to, to, to get to that. Um, so when you have one partner who's like totally frustrated, it's going to create resentment and withdrawal and more resentment and then disconnection and lack of affection and all kinds of stuff. And then it, it can lead to the eruption of the of this relationship because somebody is going to get completely fed up at some point and either leave, have an affair or, or something. So 
something, this has to be discussed and talked about, and it can be done safely in a therapist's office. Actually, on Wednesday night, I'm going to talk about uh, sexual communication. So that might be something good to um, even to share with your wife. So you can listen to the show, you can pick up the podcast following the show, and then you can share that with your partner. So it's a good way to, to kind of bring up the topic of, hey, we need to um, communicate sexually, and I need I need to talk to you about this. I need us to communicate about this. Uh, text writes, and yes, men are lucky. Do not get headaches at night like most women, LOL. Ha ha. I'm sure some men get headaches too. Come on. Coming up in uh, on the program, we have uh, our LGBTQ panel, which means we discuss uh, issues relating to the LGBTQ community. And one of those issues is uh, conversion therapy, which is kind of big in the States, it seems. Um, not so much here, and there's laws around that now, Um so we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about gaydar. There was a question that was uh, asked of me a while back, and um, and I, I said I would share it with our LGBTQ panel in terms of gaydar. Like, how do you know? That's what we're going to figure out. So that's coming up. A safe place to work out the kinks in any relationship. It's Passion with CGAD 800's Dr. Lori Batito. Tonight, uh, our LGBTQ panel in studio with us, we have uh, Bill Ryan, who is a McGill professor and a longtime LGBTQ activist. We have uh, David Hawkins, who is the West Island, uh, the director of the West Island LGBTQ Center. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you for having us. So there's a, uh, first of all, let's go with an e- like a fun topic, and maybe you guys can answer this. I got a letter uh, a little while ago, and I said, you know what, I'm going to save it for the, for the panel. So, uh, I'm a male in my mid-twenties. I'm exploring my gay side after two disastrous relationships with women. I'm a fairly attractive male in a masculine way, but do not like grinder, online dating, etc. I like to meet people face-to-face. I started going to gay bars, and many older men try to pick me up. I also notice a lot of older men staring at me in the metro, supermarkets, etc. Problem is, I never or rarely find good-looking young males staring at me in the same way in public places. Young guys also ignore me in gay bars. Also, my gaydar does not work at all outside of gay bars. I do not know often when people stare at each other sexually or for other reasons in public places. I like some attention from older guys, but would also like positive attention from younger guys. How do I attract younger men? How does one develop gaydar? I only started being exposed to the gay world two years ago. Can you even answer that? Boy, there's a lot in that. Yeah, tell me. Mm. (laughs) As someone who's been around, eh, Bill, too. Yeah, here's a young one, and here's another generation. I mean, when I can figure it out, I'll I'll let you know. But uh, I mean, I'm not having much luck with it myself either. What, like, after years and years of being part of this community, um, I mean, I I think I have to kind of fall back to the standard, like, gaydar doesn't really exist i mean that is always just based on trying to notice um minute tells by basing it on standard stereotypes and i mean i used to praise myself for how good my gaydar was when i was in Mm cjap and 
and uh, kind of my early university years and then just realizing that it actually just had a lot more to do with with looking at stereotypes and kind of the minute ways that those come across right um i realized that like it's a lot harder than you tend to think like i can see someone be like oh he's cute i bet he's gay like i get that vibe but no no i'm it's i'm just not. looking at someone who's like <laughs> takes good care of themselves that's interesting he's a product yeah exactly <laughs> But I, I think that in some ways, um, it's a lot harder today. Hmm. Um, because I think what we call mainstreaming or or sort of the, the disappearance of stigma and the sort of gay and lesbian, bisexual, trans communities being less marginalized um, and social spaces being much less rigid. You know, if you go into a gay bar, or, I was going to say lesbian bar, there aren't many lesbian bars mm-hmm. in the world, but if you go into, a, say, a gay bar in downtown Montreal in the village, you're liable to meet all kinds of people there who aren't gay or lesbian. Right. And whereas, you know, 20 or 30 years ago when I came out, if you went into a gay bar, there wasn't anybody in there who wasn't gay. <laughs> right. Um, people wouldn't be caught dead in a gay bar. Or if they were there, they were curious because their brother was gay or their uncle right. was gay or something like that. So I, I think it's become a little bit more difficult in the sense that we're shifting the things that we rely on in order to meet people. And uh, the person who wrote the letter talked about Grindr and various applications. And those have become kind of, in some ways, the new gaydar. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to know who's around, you look on the app and you can see who's around within proximity um, to your telephone. Um, <clears throat> gaydar, I think it did exist and it didn't exist in the sense that there's no accurate way to tell if someone's gay or not unless they tell you that they're gay. <laughs> That's right. You know, if they have a little, That's right. little banner that says, I'm gay. That's hey, right. <laughs> you know, then you know. And you can't base it on any stereotypes or, or, or any kind of hidden messages. But there was a certain look that men would give each other and they would hold it just a little bit longer. Oh. And if both men held it, um, and one didn't become uncomfortable or get aggressive in their reaction, then you think, okay, that person might be someone who okay. you know might be interested or might be sending me a signal that they're gay as well. But the only reliable way was the person ask. would say, yeah. I am, are you, you are, am I, you know, those kinds right. of things. And how do you make yourself more attractive? You know, there are going to be people who fit in the mold of what's attractive in any certain day and age and people who don't fit as well and might have to actually work a little harder to meet people but the best way to meet people is through community organizations mm-hmm. there's lots of community suggestion. organizations in montreal get involved as a volunteer you'll yeah. meet people you'll make friends and you'll have dates AIDS community care montreal is a great yep. place to to uh to volunteer your organization mm-hmm. david is also a great place on the west island that people can volunteer right yeah i mean if they're willing to travel we're more than happy to have them uh, I think okay, the, it sounds the, like it's so yeah. far away. It's the West Island, for God's sakes. They're willing I, to travel. I mean, I agree with you, but there are other <laughs> people who are like, me. Long yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people. <laughs> Anyhow, yes, you, you do take on volunteers oh, yeah, and stuff. Yeah. Okay. And, and I've had situations where I've encouraged people to volunteer at certain organizations and, uh, and they'd often come back to me and say, oh my God, that's made such a huge difference in my yeah. life. Because it gives us a reason to meet people. And that's what we need is a reason to meet people. Mm-hmm. You, know, you don't go up to a bar and talk to a stranger so easily. You don't stop right. someone on the sidewalk yeah. and talk to them. Right. But if you're involved in some kind of common cause, then you're going to meet people. And that's really the same for whether you're gay, straight, or anybody who's looking to date or meet people in yeah. real life and not virtually, because this is the problem, right? Now you have everybody meeting virtually, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of people want the old-fashioned way. Like, I want to talk to somebody. I want to get that 
feel. Yeah. So. Well, the, the old-fashioned way was painful for a lot of people, too. Yes, eh? Because if you weren't an extrovert, bars could be very, very, very painful places. Yeah, that's true. Because you just stand on the side and drink your beer and look at people and want, and wait for someone to come up and talk to you. Yes. And most people are waiting for someone to come up and talk to them, but yes. they're not the ones who go up and talk to people. Right. Yeah. Right. I, I think nowadays as well, the, the challenge is the fact that there is so much choice and there's so much option now that it's kind of entered into the mainstream and more people are able to come out as gay and they're more comfortable being able to feel that way about themselves and expressing it. And so there's a lot more choice nowadays, but the unfortunate side effect is that people are getting a lot more picky. Like I, I think it was about this time last year I came on, I came on on the show and I was, I basically just bashed my experience with dating because like <laughs> nobody would talk to me on any form of dating app or in person. And uh, I mean, I, I think it, a lot of people tend to have really hard experiences and some people are very for, fortunate and have very good experiences in the dating world. But uh, I don't, I don't know many people who have had a, it a hundred percent easy all the time. Mm. How old are you, David? Uh, you're in your 20s. Uh, 27. Okay. Took so me a moment, but I got there. Yes, late 20s. So you're the generation brought up on these apps, of course. And uh, I don't know yeah. what your experience has been or what uh, your friend's experience is. <laughs> and, and is that the same for your friends too and your your circle? Like, I I know I know quite a few people who have been very successful on dating apps. Mm-hmm. But by and large, a lot of them are a certain way. A lot of them have very kind of fit into those neat boxes of like what is a twink or what is a what is a jock, what is a bear, and I think verbatim the thing I said last year was if you don't fit directly into one of those boxes, you have a much harder time because a lot of people tend to prescribe themselves to those boxes nowadays. Yeah, I think um, Bill, in in your day, and Bill Ryan, uh, a community activist for many, many, many years, I don't think you remember hearing the word twink, bear, all that. Was that all part of that bear, too? Bear, yes. Bear, yes? Yes, but I think that there have been certain, I don't know what, what it, profiles that have emerged and have taken on lives of their own in the last uh, 20 years or so. And and again, that's, I think, in large cities, but and in a sense... In the sense that in the in this time and age, people are out more, so they're looking for people who kind of respond to their preferences, and there are social spaces for mm-hmm. bears and social spaces for twinks. Right and, now, it's cr- yeah. what's a twink? Who wants to explain <laughs> twink to me? I have no idea what that means. I'll let you handle this one. <laughs> well, a twink. I, 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 let's try and take it as neutrally as possible because okay. it can be seen in some ways as a negative judgment, and in other ways as a positive judgment. Okay. But it basically refers to someone who is younger okay um who uh who presents as younger um so it do- doesn't look 10 years older than air or 20 years older than air but looks younger and generally is yeah i'd say in their 20s probably under 30 Teens, you can pass 20s. as a twink you know mm-hmm. there are people who call themselves daddies who are 25 and there are people who call themselves daddies who are 75 so, so that's another thing you know, daddies, daddies is another, another one yeah there are just so many, so many. Really, we're gonna have to do like a one day, like just a, a lesson, full panel, a, just a on lesson, that. a lesson on yes. on all identities. these different identities yes. that uh, that I don't ever remember hearing. Well, frankly. we talked about clones when I was coming out, and we okay. talked about clones. And what was that? A lot of bars were called clones, and people in the bars were called clones, and they were probably what we call twinks today, basically ah. younger gay men who are you know of drinking age because they're in they're in bars. Um, but uh, yes, clones, I'd forgotten about that word entirely. And the clones, you were either 
it was after the village people, right? People, mm-hmm. people dressed as the village people, mm-hmm. aside from the indigenous person. Um, the other three stereotypes in the in the village people, you would see them in the bars, and you'd see guys <laughs> dressed as the you know the construction worker, and guys dressed as the cowboy, and what was the third one? There was a cop. A cop. That's yeah. Well, a cop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a big one too. Uh-huh. The bars. Yeah. How things have changed in the yes. past couple decades. Yes. yes. Wow. This texture writes in, my gaydar is non-functional or dysfunctional. At work, there is a guy who is a bit effeminate, thinking he was gay, strike, striking up conversation. I find out he is married to a woman for 20 years with three kids. On the other end, the guy who looks like a hell's angel, rides a motorcycle, is gay with a longtime partner. Go figure. Well, oh, I feel that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was at a IGA in the West Island or Metro um, probably about two months ago and I like just struck up a conversation with one of the cashiers because I hadn't seen him for X amount of time and like he borders on Twink and is like very friendly and very outgoing and uh, has a little bit of a higher voice and so I was like oh like cool maybe he's maybe he's also a gay and I've like mm-hmm. I found like a friend or like just somebody in my day to day life I can talk to who's like not part of the center mm-hmm. where everybody I know who is gay is basically now right. and then the next time I saw him he like lit up and he was like oh hi how are you doing and admit- admittedly I developed a little bit of a crush pretty quick and then found out from uh, someone else I know who goes to the same metro nope he is straight has a girlfriend and is just like very open about himself and like very very friendly and approachable and i was like ah my gaydar's dead you know it's very interesting because that doesn't necessarily mean anything i learned that this week after speaking to a man who was married for i don't know close to 30 years and just recently divorced and Mm -hmm. is now exploring his sexuality that he just really essentially repressed like and he admits that it's almost like i didn't think about it i just got married and went on with my life and but really there's a bisexuality there it wasn't uh you know so so that doesn't always um thank thank heavens those times are over at least in in much of the western world that people aren't forced into heterosexual marriages to hide and to please their families it still happens, but it's it was but so less common. so, yeah, much so more common. common. Yeah. It depends also what culture you come mm-hmm. from, and there's so many, yeah. so many factors. Coming up, we're going to talk about conversion therapy, and interestingly enough, the former director of a prominent conversion therapy program. Guess what? He's facing charges on. <laughs> we'll talk about that coming up after we check in with CJD 800 Newsroom. The following program contains mature subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. From the pleasure and the politics to the hang-ups and the heartbreak, you're listening to Passion, CJD 800. So conversion therapy is uh, back in the news, and to discuss it is my LGBTQ panel, David Hawkins, who is the director of the West Island LGBTQ Center, and Bill Ryan, who's a McGill professor and long-time, long-time LGBTQ activists, and can give you, he's like the historian on LGBTQ. Uh, I 200 last week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you, you have more history in your brain about everything than anyone I know, so maybe that's why you're the professor. So, Professor Bill Ryan. All right, uh, conversion therapy. So, I was reading this interesting story, and then we talked about the the law. And I love the headline was this: the former director of a prominent conversion therapy program is now facing charges in connection with the sexual abuse of an underage boy. 
so this is, uh, he pled guilty, of course, this uh, Uniting Church pastor from uh, Australia. Um, allegations that he molested a 13-year-old boy while he was senior pastor of the Newton Mission Uniting Church in the 80s. It, but in ninth, the interesting piece in here, and I feel horrible that obviously this has happened, but in 1999, he became the director of Living Waters, one of the biggest gay conversion therapy programs in Australia, and he retired in uh, 2014. Living Waters was founded with the sole mission of converting gay people, or as it likes to call it, sexual and relational brokenness. People who worked with the program said that homosexuality was usually caused by sexual abuse, but could also be caused by disgusting television shows. (laughs) This is what they're... Yeah. Uh, In the profile, Brookman said that he is one of the ex-gay movement's success stories. He said that he used to lead a double life, pastor by day, gay scene queen by night, but said that he is now so devoted to his wife that he finds sex with men repulsive but not seemingly not with boys, (laughs) with Mm. younger boys. Um, He said that as a Christian teen, his homosexuality was driven inward, but it was always just under the surface. When I was 26, I discovered homosexual pornography. I got married when I was 29 for all the wrong reasons. I wanted to keep up appearances as a happily married minister, but it was a very sad and dysfunctional marriage. But it all changed for him in 1990 when he heard a speech by a Christian psychologist. That began a three-year journey of meeting fortnightly with another pastor and confessing my sins. He prayed for the pain in my heart and asked that the Holy Spirit bring healing slowly but surely. I was transformed. Now, after pleading not guilty to these charges, he said that, listen to this, he never actually believed in conversion therapy and that rumors that he did were a media beat up. I don't know what that means. Um, but he was in charge. Of- but he was in charge of this thing. This is what Living Waters was focused on conversion therapy. And prayer is the first step to turning straight, according to Living Waters. So pray the gay away is basically the motto of these things. So, I mean, clearly. Not surprised in this latest. Nuts, right? So, And this isn't the first story that I've heard of people who no. worked in th- this field and turned out to, to to still have a get caught or, or do have a double life or whatever it is. So what is the state of conversion therapy, Bill, in Canada? Well, the state of conversion therapy in Canada on um, March 9th today mm-hmm. 2020 is is that it is um in 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 at grave risk as um the minister of justice and the minister of gender uh women and gender equality in ottawa submitted uh um, a draft of a new law which would introduce conversion therapy into the criminal code as uh, criminal behavior and um, the reason for this is, and this has been called for, you know, by the psychiatric, psychological, sexological, social work, counseling, all of the health professionals, um, medical associations have been calling for this practice to be rendered illegal because um, in healthcare, including mental health, our work has to be based on science and not on prejudice. Right. And um, there's no scientific evidence for, first of all, 
any pathology being related to same-sex attraction. And secondly, there's no scientific evidence you can actually force someone to change mm-hmm. their sexual preferences or their orientation. Well, we already kind of know treatment. that we can't. We only People know that trying. we can repress. Mm-hmm. Anybody can not act on something, right. but okay, that's fine. So you tell somebody, don't act on it. So then they end up going in a heterosexual relationship, fantasizing about their homosexual whatever it is, their homosexual fantasies in order to be able to perform heterosexually. Which is what they encourage people to do. Right. But where does that... So it's really just about living... Right. Not accepting your sexuality and living another sexuality which doesn't really fit with your orientation, but for the sake of... Yes. Yes. Your religion. Yes. For the facade. For the facade. Yeah. Yes. And uh, and of course, you know... um, the, the, when we're talking about healthcare professionals in, in Canada, generally speaking, conversion therapy has been associated in the last 20 years with religious organizations. Mm-hmm. There are a few non-religious organizations that claim to be able to do something called conversion therapy, but this is basically torture. Mm-hmm. It's, it's yep. basically torture. It's psychological and it's sometimes physical torture. And uh, there are places where you can send your children in countries that are less, um, that have less legal protections for gender and sexual minorities than Canada does, where they will torture your child. They will run electroshock treatments on them. They will run aversion therapy programs on them. They will dig a hole six feet deep and put them in a hole in the ground for three days without light. All of this in order to cure them. And of course, how do these people leave these programs? They don't leave cured. No, traumatized. Lot, years and years mm. and years trying to work out what happened to them in therapy mm. at a time when they were so vulnerable. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So um, uh, there's a story which I found interesting. A Christian couple says they are the victims of a of religion-based discrimination after being refused by a foster agency when they said that they would send a hypothetical gay foster child to conversion therapy. Right. And, and of course, the organization is is calling it child abuse. They're right. saying conversion therapy yep. is child abuse. Yeah. Right. It's no different than saying you'd lock your child in your room for three weeks and only give them bread and water. You know, this is, this mm. is something that foster and adoption agencies have a responsibility to verify and it come, falls under the category of abuse. Mm. Uh, again, they can't change this parent's beliefs but they can make sure these parents don't have any foster kids. Right. And they're actually suing. Mm-hmm. They're actually suing, saying that they're, uh, that this agency is discriminating against them and yeah. you know, thinking well, they know, will win. But who the hell wants to send a kid there? Well, we know, too, that there's a higher representation of LGBTQ kids in foster care mm-hmm. and, in, and in youth services for youth who are on the street. Because kids either run away from home out of anticipation of being rejected mm-hmm. or they get kicked out because they are rejected. And so you're, you're, you have an agency that works with vulnerable children ostensibly looking at the possibility of putting a child in an abusive environment for foster care. They just can't do that. Yeah. Actually, this, um, according to an organization and the, the American Psychiatric Association, even conversion therapy that doesn't use abusive or violent techniques can harm a child's mental health by teaching them that they are fundamentally broken because Mm. of their identity. The practice has been linked to increased risk of depression, anxiety, drug use, homelessness, 
and suicide. suicide. There yeah. is nothing, nothing good about it. No, I've, I've never heard one good account of conversion therapy. No, not one. I've met a lot of people who've been putting who've done it? Really? their children. And let me tell you, 10, 15 years it takes to work it all out. If they get, if they work it out, how popular was that when you when you were coming out? I mean, many many years ago. I mean, I, I'm not, we're not really like thinking about it. Like, I, I don't hear too much about people doing that here, at least conversion well, therapy. But I don't know how. One of the French TV networks did an expose on it about a year and a half ago, and uh, looking at conversion therapy in Quebec, and they found people. They went in with hidden cameras, and they found people on the South Shore of Montreal, related to various churches. They found kind of quote-unquote Christian counselors, mm. um, you know, and you certainly counselors have a right to be Christian or have any other religious right. persuasion, but you don't pull your tarot cards out when you're working with clients. That's not science. Right. Right? You use science and evidence. Um, so when I was coming out, probably conversion therapy was just called help. <laughs> you know, mm. it, it was pretty common, actually, really, in a religious yeah? perspective, and you could go, you could, you could have psychiatric treatment too for you up until the 1970s in this country pretty regularly in psychiatric hospitals um, electric shock treatment those kinds mm -hmm. of things um, so it was almost a standard kind of practice if you went somewhere to get to get help of course now help, we know they would help you not to be gay not to be gay right yeah. so helping not to be gay conversion therapy and a new law passed here in uh, in Canada if you I'd love to hear your stories if that has ever happened to you or you've had any form of conversion therapy and share with our passion community tonight with our LGBTQ panel passion with Dr. Lori Batito on CJAD 800 We've been talking about conversion therapy with uh, my LGBTQ panel. We have David Hawkins, who is the uh, director of the West Island LGBTQ Center, and Bill Ryan, who is a McGill professor and a longtime LGBTQ activist. So this person writes in, conversion therapy is a pseudoscientific practice. The APA opposes any psychiatric treatment based on assumption. Trying to convert anyone, question their own sexuality is outright unethical. If someone chooses to look for religious guidance or look towards another area for help, where they choose to seek help is their choice, no one else's. If the person is gay, lesbian, or straight, it will work out at the end. Or work out or come through. <laughs> like, which is it going to be, you know? And mm. uh, Listen, some people might very well mm. be uncomfortable with their orientation, too, and may, like, what do you tell someone who says, but I don't want to live a, a gay life. I don't want to. I know I feel this, but I don't want to. I, I, I want to get married to a woman. I want to have a family. Well, you can't tell someone how to or how not to live right. their own personal mm -hmm. lives. And people learn by experience and by living. You know, inside of myself, I would think, hmm. You know, I hope this person can be authentic to themselves and to the people that they live with. Right. But I can't, I, in, in the same way that I don't want people forcing someone not to be gay, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not out there either to, to force somebody to, force someone to be into gay. Be, into right. a certain life. I agree. And they may end up being celibate or they may end up being married to someone of the opposite sex. Yeah. And they may be honest about their feelings with that person or they mm -hmm. may not be, but that's for them to manage in their own view of yeah. Yeah. authenticity. Like I, I do know a few people, sorry, David, no I do worries. know a few people who are religious, who identify as gay, who choose not to who choose to be celibate, who mm -hmm. choose just not to act on on it. And there there are gay priests, right, who don't, they don't know, have their straight priests. Yep. Mm -hmm. they, they just don't express their sexuality by choice. Mm -hmm. 
It's mm-hmm. so you can make a choice. You're not making a choice with your identity necessarily or your orientation, but you can make a choice with your behavior. Yes. Yeah. But yeah. It, that's authentic. It, it's not trying to pray the gay away. The gay's still there. You just don't have to act on it yeah. if you don't want to, if you're yeah. not comfortable yeah. with it. As yeah. you don't have to act heterosexually. Exactly. If you're not comfortable exactly. acting heterosexually. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I, I, I mean, I think if if somebody's gay, if someone's lesbian, but they want to try and try and live in a in a kind of a, a straight relationship, a quote unquote straight mm-hmm. relationship, that they're very much within their right to do so. However, um, as an example, in my family, I believe I have a great uncle who came out at the age of like 65 mm-hmm. over dinner to his wife and his three kids as, oh, honey, I have something to tell you. I'm, I'm gay. And the reality was, it was just um, he couldn't feel fulfilled as, as a person, despite having been loving his wife and having kids and loving his kids. He couldn't necessarily feel, feel fulfilled because it was still the side of him that he was ignoring. So whether someone is gay, lesbian, trans, mm-hmm. pan, any of those kind of that that alphabet of other terms, um, if you have every capacity to live your life however you want to choose to live your life, but if you want to kind of ignore that side of you, um, I don't know that you'll ever be able to reach like 100% real fulfillment because there's always going to be that side of you that you neglect and you kind of put in a box and put away in a corner some somewhere. people are comfortable putting things yeah. in a box yeah. and some people have to and some, yeah. some yeah. Have points to. in their lives yeah and and that's that's okay if you have to to survive if you have to because yeah. it goes against whatever it is you your own beliefs um, but that's very different to me like making that choice mm-hmm. than uh you know, being tortured because this is the way to get it out of you. Like yeah. the belief that you can actually eliminate this from my being. Mm-hmm. You can change behavior, but you can't eliminate the identity. Right. Right. So I think that's important. And this text writes in just because someone has thoughts about something, it does not mean that they would want to explore exactly that's what we're true. saying. Yeah. As much as some groups would recommend not to explore, other groups would encourage the person to explore. That in itself is wrong. So that's what we're saying is we're not telling somebody go do mm-hmm. this or go do or don't do this. It all depends on you individually what you're comfortable with. But then some people find that they they get comfortable later. Like I was talking about somebody in their fifties. Uh, he you know married for almost 30 years and then then discovering that side and saying oh yeah. like kind of never quite knew it was there but kind of kind of but not yeah. you know it was so buried deep down yeah. and and i think if you look at someone in their 50s or 60s you have to you have to remember the context in which they grew yes. up yeah and what yes. that did to them and and so i would make one distinction about um it being the same as being behaving same sex or or mixed sex and that is that um, people who are same-sex oriented, in order to live fulfilling lives, they have to work through some of the crap yes. that they have been mm-hmm. that has been imposed yes. upon them from the time that they were a child. That's right. In most cases, heterosexual people don't have to do that. Yeah. No, that's so there's exactly. this very big step that everyone has to work their way through, and sometimes it takes people twenty or thirty years to do that, and sometimes, thankfully, today more and more, it takes a couple of months. Mm-hmm. And for some young people, it might not even take anything because it's just part of how they grow up now, knowing that mm-hmm. that's possible for them. Yes, and yeah. in talking to this uh, this older gentleman, I asked, like, do you feel guilt? Do you feel shame? He says, no, none of that. It's just like, 
Yeah. It's okay, you know, it's yeah. it's fine. Like it didn't even bat an eye going through that process, which I thought yeah. was interesting mm-hmm. because of course today it's much easier mm-hmm. yeah. than I, it was then. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't like, there was no no real stigma with it. Yeah, I, I was, I'm going to use an example from recently. Um, I... I have had a very fortunate coming out experience. I've never lost anybody. All my friends, all my family have been fully supportive of me. I've been Let me very just tell our listeners, oh, David yeah. is 27 years old, just so you know oh, yeah. the difference I, in ages because you yeah. can't see, but he's a he's I am a, a child a of the one. 90s. I am a child of the 90s. <laughs> right. Um, and so I, I was very for- fortunate in that like I had a wonderful supportive network, didn't lose anybody. I'm from an upper middle class family. I'm white. Like I have very little in terms of hardships. And I was over the summer, I was talking to a friend of mine and they were saying how uh, they don't really talk to their family anymore because because their family won't accept the fact that they're pansexual. And I was recounting my experiences and said that I, I kind of felt guilty having these good experiences because there are so many people who still have so much trouble. And I've seen it with so many of our kids, so many of our young adults, so many of our seniors, like at the center I'm, I'm, I think I'm kind of one of the exceptions Mm -hmm. and, and unbeknownst to me, somebody who happened to overhear the conversation was an older woman who was also a lesbian. And she took me aside afterwards and she was like, I just want to let you know, um, I'm, I'm a lesbian and, and I want you to know that you don't need to feel guilty because for me, when I was growing up, I don't know one person who had any form of a good experience Mm -hmm. in their coming out in their journey as a queer person. And for me to hear someone now saying that they have encountered very few barriers and that they felt so supportive um, tells me that things are changing. And I think um, even something I like to say very often is like things are changing and I'm very happy for that. They're not changing fast enough, but they are changing. But they are changing, yeah. Can I say something really quick? Of course you can. Because we've talked about religions a fair bit. And I, I just want to make sure that people who are listening understand and realize that in every single major religious persuasion, there is a part of that organization working towards acceptance of LGBT Mm -hmm. people, whether you're Christian, Muslim, Jewish, Buddhist, whatever it may be. And, um, and if, if you're in a church that's conservative and condemns people because they're LGBTQ, know that within that church there is at least a small group of people working to change that. In a mm-hmm. city like Montreal, there are Catholic parishes, there are synagogues, there are temples, there are mosques that are open. You just have to find them and go on the internet and find them. And you can live your religious beliefs and, and your, sexuality your sexuality without denying one or the other. Yeah, Exactly. That's a great point. I'm so glad you brought that up because... You're right. And we live in a time when we can find them on Google. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They are to be found. They are not hidden somewhere uh, far away. Mm -hmm. Now, just this last, I know we don't have time to talk about American politics, which we usually love to do on the show, but I just had to bring this up. A Republican state senator in Arkansas suggested pulling funding for PBS uh, in that state because a gay actor will appear on Sesame Street Mm -hmm. this year. Billy Porter, who plays Pray Tell on Pose, uh, will make a guest appearance. And uh, they posted a picture of him in his famous tuxedo gown in front of 123 Sesame Street. And, of course, now they want to uh, pass a bill to cut off all funding for the rebroadcast of PBS programming uh, and stop all funding for AETN altogether if necessary mm-hmm. for that reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sad. I was like, like yeah. nothing to say to I, that. I just right? want Billy Porter Sad. to keep 
smashing barriers. Like I think he yeah. is. I think they're absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, uh, I so. think it's necessary, and we could we could do a whole show on that in the media, gay gay LGBTQ in the media, we and should. maybe we'll let's do that yeah. maybe next time. See if my memory will keep keep that. I'll write it <laughs> we, down. I'll we, write, we can remind I'll you. I'll write it down. Please do. The young mind over there, David Hawkins, will remind you. Oh, me. you're in uh, trouble if you're relying yeah. on me. David, where can people uh, reach you? Uh, so you can find us on all our social medias at LGBTQ2Center or LGBTQ2 underscore center wonderful. in terms of Instagram. So. Thank you so much. And Bill Ryan, you can find him teaching at McGill University in the School of Social Work. We'll see you guys again next month. Thank you all for uh, listening to us and for your text. Thanks to uh, Dave Simon, our technical producer tonight. You can connect with me on social media at Dr. Lori Batito or through my website, drlori.com, where you can also find uh, all the podcasts of past shows. So if you uh, don't get to stay up uh, this late and you want to watch, listen to them again or share them, then uh, you can get them there. Coming up next year on CJD, we bring you the CTV National News. Have a great rest of the evening and remember to live your life with passion. 